in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Dustin Melbarnes, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to headphones in your ears. Welcome, all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Lizzie Haynes, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Dustin Melbardis. Dustin, what's up? Good evening. I am tired and too busy, but it's time to relax with a movie. That's right. Happy that you're here. Happy to talk about movies. And we have a special guest with us today coming to us from the Classic Film Review Podcast. We have John Coronelison. John, how's it going? Good, good. I'm so happy to be here with you guys tonight. Thanks so much for coming. I'm so excited to talk to you about this movie and just pick your brain in general. Now, can you tell us a little bit about the Classic Film Review Podcast? Yes, I uh, focus on uh, movies that are 25 years or older, and I've been doing a lot of film noir lately, uh, kind of a subgenre. And I recently, for the last 20 or so episodes, been making a YouTube video for it as well. Nice. Sounds rad. Yeah, we're cut from the same cloth then. I love that. So let's do a quick warm-up question, especially given the nature of your podcast. What makes a movie classic for you? Well, I picked the uh, 25 years because that's an automobile time to make it a classic car. Nice. But, yeah. That makes sense. But a lot of uh, uh, a lot of it is when it becomes part of our culture, when we all look at it. When I say walk this way, everybody thinks about Young Frankenstein, 1974, you know, in the Aerosmith song that came out of it, walk this way. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's a good yes. answer. Dustin, what about you? Uh, for, for me, it is the stuff that you cannot have missed as if it would have been harder for you to miss it than to have seen it. So that that counts the things that come on TV a lot or the things that maybe your teacher would have shown you. Uh, I was lucky enough for like history class to see Amistad, you know, about uh, you know the slaves coming over. I think some people have different things that their teachers or even their coaches had shown them. But uh, things that have become kind of the the canon, as in, oh, you had to watch Gone with the Wind, whether you liked it or not. And usually that's accompanied with some type of line that is so pervasive, like it's in the zeitgeist that you don't even have to have seen the movie. You just know the reference when somebody says it. Yes, agreed. I will piggyback off of both of you. And I think a classic really is just something that speaks to a specific generation. I was an 88 baby I think a bunch of 90s movies, like I think Scream is a classic. For me, it's just, it spoke to our generation at that time in the 90s and I it holds up for me today. So I think anything that really, like you said, sparks that love for an entire generation, I think falls under the category of a classic. Speaking of the 90s, I think of Clueless. I, I don't know if I yes. could tell you anything about Clueless to this day, except for like the outfits and the style of speaking. Uh, yes. Other things, like a little bit before that, like Fast Times at Ridgemont High, like there are certain things that mm -hmm. you kind of recognize. Sometimes it's just the music, but it's just part of my entire personality is based on Monty Python and the Holy Grail. 
Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> I didn't have a choice. It was just in my life as a kid and it really can mold you, these, these movies when they're introduced. Absolutely. 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 You got to watch Clueless though. If you don't know what it's about, you got to check it out. You I've my grandma seen it like three times. I just don't remember. <laughs> John, what was the last movie you saw? Uh, the last one I uh, saw was The Machine, 20, uh, 2023, nice. with uh, Burt Kreisner, the comedian. Yes. And he had uh, Mark Hamill playing his father as a kind of a little timid uh, furniture salesman from Florida. It was pretty funny. I, I am familiar with the story that that comedian has told. And there are times when you try to stretch a bit or stretch uh, like a, a sketch into a movie and it fails. You know, I, I don't think that the Superstar movie was that great. The Ladies Man was a great sketch, but not a great movie. I love Superstar. <laughs> of course, Lizzie loves Superstar. Uh, but, but then the, the, the machine story is such a wild story. That when I saw the preview for it, I thought, oh, this this actually looks okay. I didn't know Mark Hamill was in it. How do you feel about Night of the yeah. Roxbury? The, well, the, the music's awesome. Uh, <laughs> uh, and and uh, so Farrell and Catan, uh, aside from just their head motions, which yes. listeners, you can't see, uh, I don't know if I remember a single thing about oh that movie. Oh my gosh, it's such a great movie. Oh, we won't, we won't talk about that movie today. I will follow up. Uh, with you, Dustin, what is the last movie that you saw? Uh, I was doing a little prep for our end of the year show where we recap the top 10 from 10 years ago. So I was just kind of going through a list of 2013 movies and there was something I had meant to see and never saw. Uh, it is based on a play, much like the movie we're covering tonight. And typically when I see that, it's kind of like bullseye. That's the kind of presence and it's the kind of feel that I want. So I was uh, I I rented and watched August Osage County. Oh, nice! Yes, it's yes. Yeah, uh, Julia Roberts, Meryl Streep, mm -hmm. uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, you've got you've got a bunch of people in there, but it is definitely it takes advantage of everything's happening in one place, essentially like one set, very much like our movie we're covering tonight. But uh, we'll see if it makes my top ten. But I do I I would recommend it. Yes, that's a slice of life, right? We've thrown that around a yeah, couple of times. Yes. The last movie that I saw, um, you all have been going on this journey with me, Retro Movie Roundtable listeners, because every single time that I have to answer the question of what the last movie I saw was for the past month or so has been something in the Insidious family because I was working my way up to watching The Red Door, and I finally did it. I watched The Red Door, and I'm glad that I waited until I was able to stream it but it was still good. I'm, you know, I, it's my review of that fully is for another day, oh. but I give it a solid B minus. You said my reviews for another day and then you just gave us. The, <laughs> I guess the that's true. My in-depth <laughs> review, I should say. <laughs> my my in-depth review, but I'll tease you with the headline that I give it a B minus. You know, that makes me think with horror, John, are, is there Classic horror? Uh, is there is there a special subgenre? Do you ever spend time on classic horror? Oh, I spend, I love doing horror films. I have done a bunch of them, and I bring my uh, my uh, daughter in sometimes. It's my vampire expert nice. because mm -hmm. she reads all the books on it and stuff. But you know, going back to the, I think that one of the scariest ones is the uh, the original Frankenstein with the Ardeth Bay character. Like, I don't know if it's thirty one or thirty two, but. Uh, 
that's the scariest one to me. But the modern one, I know y'all are talking about Scream and all Osage County. I haven't even seen these movies, just like what we were talking about uh-huh. before the fifties. I'm, I'm the same way with the nineties and up, but, uh, Lost Boys. Oh, yes. love a Lost great Boys. movie. Yeah. And the other one, um, Fright Night. Yes. Yes. The original well, Fright Night. The original, so. the Colin Farrell one was nothing to write home about, but the original one's good. Right. So I mean, I've like that. And so I like a lot of vampires, werewolves, mummies, just the classic Gilmans, anything <laughs> like that. Nice. Nice. Oh, wow. Well, today's movie doesn't fall under classic horror, but there are some elements of it that are frightening. So let's talk about today's movie. Dustin, can you tell us what we're covering today? From 1960, Inherit the Wind. Starring Spencer Tracy, Frederick March, Gene Kelly, Dick York, Donna Anderson, Harry Morgan. It was released in 1960. This movie had a budget of $2 million and it broke even. It grossed $2 million worldwide. Fortunately, we don't have a lot about how it ranked that year, but we do know that Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid came in at number one that year. This movie has an IMDb rating of 8.1 and a Rotten Tomatoes score 93% from the critics and an audience score of 91%. So pretty on par with each other. This movie was nominated for four Academy Awards, Spencer Tracy for Best Actor, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Cinematography, and Best Film Editing. It was nominated for two Golden Globe Awards, Best Motion Picture, and Best Actor. And it did also, uh, was nominated for some BAFTA Awards for Best Film from any source. So honestly, I mean, this movie is definitely a critically acclaimed movie, and I want to talk about it with you guys. So John, you were the one that selected this movie for us to review. I want to know, had you seen it before? If you had, what were your expectations coming in? And do you think that this movie holds up? Oh, I've seen this movie probably 20 times, starting probably around the the mid-70s when I first saw it. And I've always loved this movie, and it's I think it's more important now than it's ever been where we are as America. And I'm not getting political, but it's just an important thing about uh, how we set up our society. And when I watched it, I just, the most recent watching of it, Frederick March, I, I know him better as an actor. And then going all the way back, you know, Harry Morgan and Claude Akins and uh, Dick York and all these people went on to have great careers. And so it's a fantastic movie with just chock full of fantastic act- actors. Nice. I love that you chose something that was an all-time movie, 20 times. I feel like that gets categorized as a favorite movie for me. If I can watch it more than 10 times, I think it gets filed away as one of my favorites. So I'm excited to cover it with you. Dustin, what about you? Well, have you Had you seen this movie before? What are your thoughts? I had never seen it. I watched it twice in two days. Uh, and I listened to a little bit of it, uh, particularly the courtroom side of things, uh, on my commute to work the other day. Uh, there, there's things about impactful courtroom movies, drama, suspense, and the procedure of it that should be boring, but it's the opposite. It is, it's compelling. Uh, everything happening in one room. Uh, all I knew was that it was a courtroom drama. Now, I believe if you find this movie, it will tell you it has... It's, it's based on the Scopes Monkey Trial, uh, and, I, that, and it had roots to Tennessee. Now, I'm from Tennessee, 
And so there were things here that I said, I'm, I'm going to have my ear open a little bit more. I'm going to be focusing a little bit more. And uh, before we started rolling tonight, you know, I had texted Lizzie before and said, you know, of our hosts on this show, three of them are from West Virginia, one's from Kentucky, one's from Tennessee. We kind of know this part of the country well. Yeah. So because of that, and and not not only do I know that part of the country well, but I left it for a similar part of the country. But I can tell the differences once once you leave home like that. And so there were there were things that I like. It was a stark recognition, uh, and then there was also some things that uh, just really really seemed real. And that's well done for like our director side. But as far as my expectations went, I, I will tell you, I expected us to hit the courtroom proceedings sooner than an hour in. And I thought that was really special to set up the community, to set up what the town of Hillsborough is like. Uh, so that was a, a, something that kind of, while it wasn't quite my expectation, I was kind of thrilled to see what their choice was. Um, and I, I have to mimic what John said. Uh, some movies hold up, some movies are prophetic. And and this movie has so many lessons that can, th th it will endure this movie. And if it does not endure, then it should be one of those as I'm with my, with my definition of classic movies, this one should be in the same unit or at least in the same curriculum as uh, 12 angry men. Wow. That's awesome. Well, I uh, well well said. Well said. First of all, I had not seen this movie before, and to be totally honest, I'd never really heard of it. I've heard of the Scopes Monkey Trial, but I was not aware that this movie was based on it. I've had a habit and built one on this podcast of if I haven't heard of it, I don't even read the summary. I just look it up where I can stream it and press play. Smart. And so I had no idea what this movie was going to be about and just went in completely blind. I knew at some point when they started singing the old time religion song that in some way, somehow this was going to get tied in. And I just, to be totally honest, I started and stopped this movie just throughout my day. And I kept telling my husband, I think I know how this movie is going to end. And every single time I thought that I had its number, it, I didn't. So it really, um, it took me by surprise and I definitely am excited to get into the plot with you all, but not before we take a quick ad break because we want to spoil this movie for you. But first, if you have not seen Inherit the Wind, make sure that you go check it out. Otherwise, spoilers lie ahead. Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason, and this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. And we're back. All right, guys. Thanks for hanging in there with us. And again, just a final warning, there are going to be spoilers. Dustin, can you take us away? 
Bert Cates of Hillsborough, Tennessee, finds himself in the safest place in the world, jail, for violating Public Act 31428, Volume 37, Statute Number 31428 of the State Code, which makes it unlawful for any teacher of the public schools to teach any theory that denies the creation of man as taught in the Bible and to teach instead that man has descended from a lower order of animals, a law that reflects the feelings of the community, the buckle of the Bible belt itself. The national papers get word of Bert's imprisonment and impending trial, resulting in religious zealot volunteer prosecutor Matthew Harrison Brady coming to town to be met by two representatives of the wider metropolitan world outside of Hillsborough, attorney Henry Drummond, and journalist E.K. Hornbeck. The Baltimore Herald has invited Brady's old friend and rival from Chicago to provide suitable representation for Burt in a town that doesn't take too kindly to scientific progress. Judge Mel Coffey runs a pretty tight ship and engenders a fair courtroom for the most part, but disallows any of the leading scientists of the time to speak on behalf of Charles Darwin's theory of evolution and the descent of man, the crux of this law. This leads to Drummond placing his rival attorney, Brady, on the stand to defend the stances of the Bible to reveal the dichotomy that either Brady is the only man in the world allowed to think to interpret the natural law of the Bible, or that all people should be able to think and theorize about man's creation. A compelling argument indeed, but the small-town jury still reaches a guilty verdict. Judge Coffey finds himself pressured to set a precedent for this law, with a radio broadcast covering the result, and sets Burt's sentence to a simple $100 fine. Brady preaches and proselytizes further until his body fails him and he falls to the floor dead. E.K. and Drummond wax about their role in this progressive case before leaving Hillsborough with nary a mind changed. All right. Thank you, Dustin. So, yes, this movie is ultimately trying to illustrate how this trial took place. But I really think ultimately there are a couple of main questions that live within this movie. I think that what I want to discuss first and foremost is this idea of science and religion, you know, because according to Brady and in his ideals, science and religion cannot coexist. And I want to hear what you guys think. John, do you think that there is a place in which science and religion can live together in harmony? I, see, I have never seen the conflict myself. I was, uh, I'm a retired professional archeologist, so I'm sort of a scientist. Uh, they, Religion is about faith. It's about belief without evidence. And science is about belief with evidence. But it doesn't, just because one thing is true, doesn't knock out the other thing. And so I never really understood the struggle. If you if you believe like uh, Brady did in an all-powerful God, an all-powerful God can do anything, which can be compatible with science. Well said. Yeah, there's there's nothing per- in particular saying that a miracle can't be explained by observation later. I really uh, put a lot of respect on what you said about faith being belief without evidence. It's because we cannot prove it that it is faith at all. And the scientific community is an agreement on coll- like collective truth that we we believe until it, that is we can disprove all alternatives. I came from social sciences uh, in, in my past life. 
And that it was, it was always difficult once you start getting into the syntax of things like that. Now, I, I'll say that if you, if you start going back and you start trying to triangulate between where things uh, were explained by the word or where they were explained by science, I've never felt as if those two lines could ever meet a point. And, I've, and I just kind of chalked it up to, I don't know if this task can be done. And for my mind and for my faith, that was okay. But for some others who, it's like a dog with a bone, for some you would have to say, no, you must go back and be able to define or you must be able to observe and and see. Then that's where I go. I think I was just, that's where I would have let faith take over. And uh, I will say like the the crux of this movie, or at least you know, an hour 30 in, uh, you start getting some of those pressures from Drummond trying to like exactly what what is a day? We don't know what a day was. How long was a yes. day? Uh, I've had mm-hmm. talks with coworkers as to you know Abraham lived six hundred ninety years. Well, was it really a year? Did they mean to say months? If they said months, then that would make sense. There's a bunch of stuff that I've I've stopped for my own mind's sake. I've stopped trying to explain it fully. I think I've just kind of resigned to. I'm not sure if those lines can ever really cross. Nice. Yeah. I. I agree with both of you. I think that I think that there is a way for science and religion to coexist. I think that there are aspects of science that are fundamentally true. And I guess let me back up a little bit. I think that full disclosure, I'm a Christian and I believe in the word of God. I believe that God is is real and that the word of God is true. I also believe that science is our way of understanding a lot of what happens in our world. And I think that there are so there's so much about science that we know to be fundamentally true. For example, I know that water is going to freeze at 32 degrees is the freezing point. And there's just certain aspects of science that are just fundamentally true. But there's also so many aspects of science that I don't completely understand. And I think that I'm just like you said, Dustin, I think I've surrendered to that fact. And I'm okay with the fact that there's going to be elements of science that I can't completely grasp in the exact same way that there are a lot of elements in the word that I cannot completely grasp. However, my ability to understand it in no way, shape or form impacts my belief in it and for both. And I think that it's an interesting thought project from this movie is really trying to ask that question in a real way as if science and religion can really coexist. And because according to this movie, they're both fighting so hard, or at least Brady is fighting very hard to say that it's not, it's, there's a line in the sand and you have to step on either side. And I think it's, it's an interesting thought piece to be able to say that I can hold up the Bible and believe that every word of it is true, but I can also acknowledge that there's so much of science that we have used to understand what God has given us. When, when it comes to the enlightenment that is brought up later in the movie, by nature, why would we have been allowed to think if we can't figure stuff out? Yes. Uh, I, I, if I were to put myself, if I'm a Hillsborough citizen, and you know, we are lucky as the three on this podcast to have lived through several innovations and to have access to more knowledge than anyone in the history of time. And we are wealthier and more knowledgeable than anyone that came before us. And because of that, uh, we can, I think maybe our minds at our ages are maybe more adept 
at being able to compartmentalize and do these things separately. But if we're in 1920s Hillsboro and the, the idea that, well, well, I guess the radio works and the telephone works, but not a single person in that town knows how. And because, you know, God made it so that we can explain other things too, that by trying to explain one would become a heretic or one would become uh, committing some other greater sin. That's that's kind of where we get to this Hillsborough feeling. Uh, we start, I guess, what, eight, eight minutes in, maybe 10 minutes in, we're in that room with all of the men. We've got the owner of the bank. We have the mayor of the town. We have the prosecutor in that town. Uh, we have Reverend. And they are they are seeing the newspapers and say, look what we have wrought. Uh, the, the whole world is laughing at us. But the I think we'll leave the reverend stands up and says, God is testing us right now the, mm -hmm. the, with, with all of the things of science that and all of whoever that's going to write a, um, a funny headline that we have to defend the way that we believe. And it's not as if these are the wise men that know both sides and and are doing the best to reconcile and keep one in power. I think they all are artifacts of what they grew up and what they truly believed. There wasn't a choice for them not to defend their law the way that it was written. It's an interesting concept because, you know, I think so much of the Christian faith, you know, a lot of people in non-denominational Christianity talk about relationship over religion. It's a really common idea of just this idea that I want to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, one that follows the word, but rather than following kind of rituals and, and, and really putting my actions in alignment perfectly, it's more just about making sure that my heart is in alignment. And I think that that is something that I feel I wish so badly was represented in this movie because that's really, really lacking to, to your point. It's like there's this idea of, of wanting to defend their faith, but at what cost and what, you know, what becomes of them in that process and what their heart starts to turn. You know, the reverend at one point, he is talking to Rachel. At this point, Bert has been arrested and she is coming to him just begging that she that they just drop this and let this go and he starts praying you know he's like shows her the picture of her mother he's like if your mother was alive she's you know she's looking down from heaven pray that she forgives you and then he starts praying speaking from i believe the old testament talking about you know i'll give you um take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh but watching the way that a lot of these fundamentalists work it's it's interesting to see how throughout the movie, their hearts that Christ, you know, if you're convicted with the Holy Spirit, your, your heart is fleshy, but if you allow hate inside of your heart, your heart inevitably is going to harden. And it's really interesting to hear, to see that arc. And Sarah says it so eloquently at one point to, to Brady to kind of skip towards the end of the movie. Once the trial is coming to a close where she's like, I've always stood by you because you've ever, always done everything right, but now you're sacrificing your principles just to be right. How can we draw the line in the sand and say, this is what I believe, this is what I believe to be true, but for the people who don't believe it to be true, what is to come of them? And how can we still live cohesively in a society where there's love? Amazing. You know, I think, uh, I was just thinking about a couple of things while you were talking, is they, uh, 
So you mostly always said you were from the Appalachians. I'm from Mississippi, yes. um, descended out of Jordan, North Georgia. But uh, these people didn't have much besides their faith to hold on to a lot of times. So if you're just if your faith is what's made you survive and then somebody comes from some northern city mm-hmm. and they're going to take it away from <laughs> so you, of true. course you would resist it, you know. And But I, I think they also did a pretty good job of uh, the hotel man, you know, like the hotels are going to be They'll full. They'll need a place and I'm to stay. So yeah. And, uh, and even when the at the end, when the sentence was about to be pronounced, I, I'm not sure it was he the mayor that went up there and talked to the judge. I think about, it was the you know, mayor. Like, yeah. we, need to, we need to get rid of this thing. And so I thought they did, you know, like there's a hard line, there's a hard line, and then everybody else is living in the middle. Mm-hmm. We could, I bet, spend the next hour talking about just <laughs> this very particular thing about okay. the movie. Um, I, and I'm not saying that we can't, but we've got a lot of stuff to, to cover. But yeah. um, the, the, the idea of natural law or the idea that, um, you know, even kings – back in Europe were ordained by God and the government of the time, it only exists because God can allow it to exist. And then you think of things uh, along the lines of an unjust law. And this movie isn't about hatred. I I think there's, there's times that in a courtroom drama that you can see that there's somebody that's clearly hating something else and what I believe you have is instead of uh, love versus hate, you just have two extremely strong loves uh, that are on opposite side. Um, a, a love of my faith and my God and the word and this book and all of the things about our community that is great and we all share it compared to change. And the enlightenment yes. wasn't great for everyone in Italy and uh, and the difference between the Catholic and the Protestant church as uh, Drummond brings up uh, th- these these things are the bases for seventeen week college courses, and I enjoyed them when I took them. And a movie that can present it in a way where I I, I don't believe we were meant to truly dislike many of our characters. They had things that were more appealing, or they had things that were. Uh, they drew your eye or they drew your attention. But if we talk about Brady, who is representing holding up this law that I think, you know, draw your own conclusion. I believe that many, many in the town uh, kind of saw that that law could be unjust and he could not change his mind. He could not be made to say that that uh, I am fallible. And be, because of that, you might say that he might be the antagonist, but I'm, I'm not so sure. I think that there's two uh, like strong cases here just as easily, especially if you're from some of the places we're from. Uh, it would be said like, oh, uh, EK and that Chicago lawyer, they're the ones who are coming in trying to stir stuff up. This ain't even your fight. Mm-hmm. What are you even doing here? And <laughs> that that's where uh, it's not just about uh, an imprisonment or a fine. Eventually, you get to the point where you've got people parading in the street and they're saying they need to hang Bert for his yes. crimes. And it's at this point that we start to see the stakes of this zealotry, whether you would be marching with them or not. And that's where those college courses or those books, however, these kind of conflicts were presented to you when you were younger uh, to see a movie 
that is, and once again, based based on a play, which is why I think everything works so well in this courtroom. A real delight to have this mental exercise presented to you in such a compelling and, and interesting way. Agreed. Looking to your point about how I really love what you said, Dustin, about how it's just like two people who really passionately love their either their faith or their freedom to have their own intellect. And I think it's it's really interesting in the sense that when that it gets to that place where they start, you know, they have a you know an effigy of of right. birds and on fire and mm. they're talking to really, we're gonna hang them on the sour apple tree. And it's just <laughs> it's gotten like really dark at that point. To me, it it calls into question the first thing that I thought about was Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, you know, where he calls into question all of the Ten Commandments that all of the Pharisees believed in, because you know, the Pharisees knew everything there was to know about about the Torah. And he called a lot of that into question, you know. One of the Ten Commandments was not to commit adultery, but Jesus came in and said, you know, yes, we shouldn't commit adultery, but I'm here to tell you that if you lust after someone, you've committed adultery in your heart. So it's interesting, I think, watching this movie, how people who put all of their beliefs in their faith yet walk around with a burning dead man saying that they're going to hang them from the apple tree. You know, you could absolutely make an argument that those people's hearts are not in alignment with scripture. And so it's, it's interesting to see how passion can weave its way into your mind and then take things to a much darker place than they never intended to go. Modern versions of this movie, if it were made today, might include other things outside of the courtroom that I think try to add too much. I think there would be too many other B and C stories to if this if this movie was made today, you'd have uh, many other important character actors or supporting actors doing other things to uh, represent some other types of sins, perhaps. And I think one thing this movie did really well was it I don't think anybody was attempting to tear anybody else's person down. It really did as far as the courtroom. It was really about like tearing down an argument, we'll say. And that's when the procedure of it become became kind of nice because I'll stand by what I said in my plot summary is that uh, I thought Judge Mel Coffey ran a fair courtroom for the most part. Agreed. Yeah. I think he was – that was one thing that I really loved about this movie was that even the the lawyer, the district attorney – you know, when Yeah, the local district attorney. Yes, thank you. And the local district attorney comes in and he's talking uh, to to Hammond and he's just like, you know, we don't agree with you, but we respect your right to voice your beliefs. And there's such a camaraderie between both attorneys and it was really lovely. I I really appreciated that because we we don't have to live at odds with each other. I think that it's some so much of scripture is about loving your neighbor. And I think that's that's a really important part that I was pleased to see. Just to, to, I had to make a check to make sure I was right. That song was originally Hang Jeff Davis from a Sour Apple Tree. Oh gosh. Wow. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So I, I thought it was John Brown. That's why I looked it up to see which side that song came from. And that's sung to the, the like War. the glory tune, right? A, especially if you come from North Georgia, I hear that uh, coming out of Athens all the time. The, the stakes do seem incredibly high. Though, and we are, we're talking about somebody's like the first person to ever break this law. But um, I thought Davenport, that district attorney, was great. 
I thought uh, mm-hmm. EK and his just little aside, uh, Gene Kelly's character, just kind of to the side, he, he says something in it and it makes uh, Brady turn real quick over to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- you know, we talk about the the fairness of, of our judge's courtroom and we have Brady who's made an honorary colonel of the local militia. Yes. As he arrives in town. And I, I love the detail of the fans have like sponsored by like Johnson's uh, business or whatever it is. It's all that all seems so real. You know, small town parades are a big deal when there's nothing else going on. And he's made an honorary colonel. And so the first thing Drummond does, like, how am I supposed to compete with this colonel? So it's like, OK, well, you're a colonel, too. That's right. That was really sweet. Like when he asked. He has to break him to a private. A a stunning amount of like subtle comedy. I think, I think we we've mentioned before on the show that most movies aren't comedies, but most movies include a little bit of humor. Occasionally we do have those movies that have zero, but this one had such a, uh, John, did you, did you find this movie? uh, You've watched it 20 times. You, you, you anticipate some of the jokes coming, but I have to imagine you still smile at them today. Oh, I love the I love the Hornback character. You know, H. Um, L. Mencken his his quotes are so pervasive in American society. And, and Gene Kelly is just uh, he started. You said he started out as a dancer and became a great actor. He is such a manly man, you know, and he is plays such a devil in this one. He's so good. He is. He's very facetious. He, you know, that one woman, she's, you can tell she's trying to be genuine and kind. She's like, would you like a nice place to stay? He's like, I have a nice place to stay. And I left (laughs) it to come here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's really bad, but it definitely is funny. Let's talk a little bit about the Brown family. Uh, You know, Claude Atkins, he's like in these other movies uh, from here to eternity. And he always plays a tough guy. And this role was early, you know, early in his career, but he's playing against type because he's a big, you know, strapping gruff guy. But this time he's playing a, a, a driven preacher. You know, so I thought that was kind of uh, uh, just an interesting juxtaposition for him personally. And uh, Rachel, I th- <laughs> that's the one character and we'll, I'll talk about it later, but, she, I could have seen a replacement there. I thought she, she, he just spent too much time looking doe-eyed at, at uh, Burke, you know, instead of this movie. Yeah, uh, to, uh, to me, I thought she was a weak character. This movie could have been as strong as it was with an absence of romantic love. It's true for the main story. However, for her interactions with her father. For her going to Brady's uh, room after he uh, kind of falls ill, there's a relationship that maybe it just didn't click with me that first time, but Brady really is seen like a prophet here. He's seen uh, an incredibly high standard to where you would imagine that, like, I mean, they like calling a reverend father, that they would call him father. And her her presence, uh, unless there was... I feel as if there could have been something more impactful with uh, her relationship with Bert, or really, I think the stronger relationship was with her own father and, right. and her scene. I, I don't know if I've seen many other, I would say off the top of my head, it's top five, maybe even top three portrayals of a preacher uh, in, with, with the power behind the words 
And maybe that's because of our setting here. But oftentimes, pastors have a bit of an aura about them. But uh, when, when it comes to Jeremiah Brown, Claude Atkins, that was, that was some real strength. And um, I'll bring that up a little bit later, too. But what you'll see is even with his devout fervor towards what he believes, we know that his wife and um, Rachel's mom had passed. Uh, but even with that, um, he's, he's got this position. You know, he's in the room of powerful men at the beginning. Um, he takes a real backseat to the crux of our A story in in the second half of the movie. I, I'd, I'd love to. I would have loved to see more of him. Uh, so I think the the Brown family maybe maybe somewhere there was room to fit in something else about that. I just don't know how it could have been fit in more cohesively. We were already at two hours seven minutes for a 1960 movie. So I'm not sure uh, where we could have found the time because uh, the the other time that was spent on really getting a feel for what this uh, place was, I feel like maybe you would have had to sacrifice the reminiscing time between Brady and Drummond. Uh, the, the idea that they know each other and they're, they're sitting out there on yes. the rocking mm-hmm. chairs. Uh, I, I could talk about that scene for a long time, but I think you'd have to lose some of that in order to get more of the Brown family. This movie is probably the longest 1960s movie that I have watched to date. So I I agree. I don't think that you could really pop it up to two and a half hours just to have a little bit more of the Brown family. But he had a stoicism to him. And I would have really liked to have seen more of that character and possibly seen where that arc would have gone uh, as the movie progressed. But I, John, I think that in terms of Rachel, I think that when it comes to our superlatives, you and I might have been in alignment <laughs> with each other a little bit. You never know. Put him on the stand. Stay, stay tuned. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> put, put, put put Reverend Jeremiah on the stand. Uh, how powerful would it, like I said, he, he's not prevalent in the second half of the movie. You want to shoe in to convince the jury you put the pastor on, that would have done the job. Now, Brady do, being in that role, and particularly Frederick March's portrayal of him, I don't think I could ever choose to switch away from that. But if we're going to ramp up, and we don't have time to ramp up because we don't actually hit the courtroom until an hour in, but if we were ramping up, uh, you know, days at a time, this witness, that's what cross examination, that would have been special. We have other smaller special cameos, but I, I, I think his, no one's objecting to more of Claude Atkins here. Right. right. So this movie was produced and directed by Stanley Kramer. So Stanley, uh, of course, this movie is based off of the play by uh, Jerome Lawrence, Robert E. Lee. And just to go through some of some of Stanley's other works, he's had he had a pretty great career it really seemed to have taken off after this movie but some of his notable movies were the defiant ones judgment at nuremberg it's a mad 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 world ship of fools and guess who's coming to dinner so it felt like he really had a great career from 60s all the way up until about 1979 that is a that is a pretty classic list the uh defiant ones that's a uh an escape movie where they chain a black prisoner and a white prisoner together and see if they can es- keep them from escaping because they'll kill each other because of racial uh. tension. That's a good one. The on the beach is a atomic bombs destroy the world and a lone submarines trying to make it to Australia to see if anybody survives. Uh, 
course, Inherit the Wind Judgment at Nuremberg. And I highly recommend you watch it. It's long, but it's got Burt Lancaster and uh, Max von uh, Sydow and just on and on. But it's all about, that's another trial movie. And it's set almost all in the court. It's fantastic. A very young William Shatner in there. Um, Richard Widmark. It's just a fantastic movie. And all about, it's the same kind of concept because they're trying to, uh, you know, the war's been over for three years and people are kind of pressuring the judge, which is played by um, Spencer Tracy also. They're pressuring him to make, maybe don't execute these guys. It's been a long time. Feelings are down. And then I go down the list to when he was uh, as producer only, you have uh, the Kane Mutiny, 1954. Kane Mutiny, the defense attorney had to destroy Captain Quig on the stand, just like uh, the defense attorney had to do here, destroy uh, Brady on the stand. Well, he was put, he was put in, he was pressured. He was back into a corner. You won't let me bring up the people that are best qualified to talk about this. And it was smartly done by Davenport or the local prosecutor uh, who, uh, by the way, not every movie does objections being sustained. uh, Well, this one does Uh, that, that you would have expected that local prosecutor to be like young or green or um, Mm -hmm. out of his element, but he was pretty sharp too. And, And so, uh, the idea that, right. hey, you can't get any of these professors and authors and experts on. So you have, you've, lived me, you've left me no choice but to go at my longtime friend and rival. And uh, while you have to presume there was some kind of uh, enjoyment to the, the battle mm-hmm. inside the courtroom, that uh, certainly he did not want to see that happen at the end. Agreed. I think that there are... Honestly, I think the two main characters of this movie and they have such a respect for each other. I loved the scenes, particularly where um, he's having dinner with Sarah, you know, Brady's off kind of peacocking with a lot of the other men and he just sits down, he invites Sarah to sit at his table and you could just tell that there's this genuine love for this, for both men and kind of by proxy for Sarah. She's actually, was actually Frederick March's real wife. Oh, cool. You know? Really? Yeah. So, uh, you know, when oh, she does the scream, really cool. when she does the scream at the end, you know, I've always thought that that feels real yeah. when, <laughs> when he falls down. But uh, she was lovely. I love hearing that. So, so much of that love was real then, probably like when she's caressing him and just going, oh, baby, baby, baby. It was. Ultimately, it was the battle in which they both really had a genuine respect for each other. And I I think the court, like you said, the judge, I I think was honestly really fair. You kind of have an expectation of what judges are like with a lot of modern crime dramas. And so it was really nice to see a judge do his best attempt at making sure everything was fair. And, you know, later when Damon is held in contempt and he comes back later and apologizes and he's like, I'm not without grace and forgiveness. And I think everybody tried pretty hard to be on their best behavior. Right. I don't want to take anything away from Laszlo with the cinematography because there were some cool uh, moving shots inside a static room that were really well done. Uh, there were some times when a lot of faces and a lot of people were put onto the in the lens at once. 
But uh, talking about Kramer directing this movie and the choices made uh, to spend as much time as was spent to uh, understand the community, understand that uh, even in this place where we love God and it's meant to show, it's, it's not they hate science, but it's it's not it's not quite hate, but the the that there are some of the young homeroom students mm-hmm. of Bert's that uh, oh no, he, we really like him actually. Uh, th- there's allies in the town, and even when Drummond's maybe biggest uh, social ally is uh, Sarah. Uh, the, these decisions to do some things that might seem innocuous, uh, you know, dinner time or just showing us how much like Brady is eating. Um, I will say that was a pretty big shock. Uh, I would have I would have seen if you wanted to call that a heart attack, you want to call it some type of, I don't know, unholy smite. I don't know what it was, but th- the idea that we are given clues along the way, uh, I certainly did not expect that's how this would go down. But what it did, it left us to do, and it, it led me to add another one to two sentences to my plot synopsis, that this movie does not end with the verdict and sentencing. It ends with sort of a introspection onto like what just happened here. And all of a sudden, the two Balt- or the Baltimore and the Chicago guy, they've, they've got three minutes to kind of uh, jab at each other. That, exactly. hey, you're, you're, you're a lonely man. And... God, how did he describe himself? Hey, I might be rancid butter, but I'm on your side of the bread. Yes. There's that. These guys aren't buddies. No. And the the sort of recollection of what had happened. I imagine that uh, with some of the titles you had mentioned, John, that Stanley Kramer must have a habit of it's not just about what you see. It's about how you think about what you see. What you do. And then he told uh, Gene um, uh, Hornbeck. He's, uh, he tells him that there's nobody to pull the dirt over him when he dies. And he's like, you will oh, yeah. you'll do it for me. That's such a great That's bit. That's right. I liked that. He's like, because you're the kind. Yeah, you're the kind. <laughs> Which is true. I believe him to be the kind. I think that he's a kind-hearted man. Mm-hmm. So I think he absolutely would. I don't think that whether or not he liked EK was irrelevant to how he would treat him as a human being. Right, and they uh, they intentionally made Hornbeck, uh, I don't know, kind of dislikable character, but uh, he was patterned after H. L. Mencken, which is uh, you know, marriage is yeah, a you perf- brought him up before. Per- marriage is a perfect institution, but who wants to live in an institution? That's some of his. He always had these quotes, but he wasn't a he wasn't a smart aleck and a hated person like the Hornbeck character was. He was a very professional, you know, writer and scholar. Um, excuse me, scholar professional writer and scholar. Yeah, I think it's a it was a choice and a smart one to to have the journalist be on definitely not on the side of the town no. um but also kind of on no one's side that this this guy is and, and as attractive a man as Gene Kelly is, he's Maybe it's the way he wears his paper hat. I'm okay. not sure. It is. There's something about this guy that now you are selfish. You're just looking after you. You're looking to make how many how many dollars or cents per word do you get to make this the circus show that it is? Call it the Scopes Monkey Trial. The trial. It's it's circus like, not in a silly or unprofessional way either. It's just of all the things that can happen here. Uh, having some of EK's barbs, uh, you know, directed towards 
the Brady. Just just the right amount of of comedy from right. him. And uh, and I I just I love how they you know you're talking about the zoom shots and how they zoom through the court when uh, Sarah and Bert are in there in the courtroom by themselves and he comes in eating that apple so contemptuously you know it's just like the snake in the Garden of Eden you know yes. Very much so. Very much so. He absolutely represents that seize autonomy and and completely think for yourself without limits, you know, because I think that regardless of what side you're on, even if you're on the side of teaching for evolution, I think that it, it seemed like Bert was a man of God. You know, we never got 100% confirmation of that. So it wasn't necessarily that Bert was speaking out against God, but that Bert was rather speaking to try to acknowledge the fact that there possibly are things beyond our basic understanding. And whether or not I agree with that, I think that I I can appreciate the, the thought process that he has there. And I think that, of course, on, on the other side, on Brady's side, you know, it's that very much like the word is God and the word is, uh, is true, whereas... EK kind of stands a little bit more as an agent of chaos in both of those sides. <laughs> chaos. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I want to know how I got this hat. Uh, so, right. <laughs> so um, with, with Bert, who was a godly man before he was shown a book and wanted to learn the book, think for himself. Um, we're, we're kind of given the Stebbins boy anecdote. And yes. this is why. And, and so what I wanted to ask, do either of you two have like a, a, a like a quick recap? I mean, you've seen it the most, John, but um, I've got my own. But did you any, like, can you explain how the Stebbins incident changed Bert? Yeah, I, and I'm sorry, I'm not going to know it. Is the, the little boy drowned. And because yeah. he wasn't baptized, the preacher said he could not go to heaven and he was going to go to hell. And that so and we have to we have to assume this is the same preacher this is uh Claude Atkins Th- this right. is uh Jeremiah so, he so it's not like some unnamed preacher this is a person we know right so he actually put the whole thing into motion for the movie he created the the spark that pushed Bert pushed his daughter and created the trial yeah and if i remember the the, the pertinent lines were something along the lines of um uh, your faith, having it or not having it, can be like weaponized or can be used to scare you into believing or scare you into conforming. It's like a nightmare instead of a dream. And I think that's something that really does push people away from religion in general. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. That's why. That's why when you ask a question like, does this movie hold up? It doesn't just hold up. It super holds up. It's got a special hold up to it, which is that these lessons uh, we're looking at 63 years later that uh, this it's very clear. You talk to your friends who grew up with particular uh, upbringing, whether they stuck with it or not. And these are the the kinds of values that people that decide to leave religion or even just decide to leave a sect of a church, whatever it is, they can point to all the time is that I felt like I was living in a vice that I had a, a constrictions on everything that I could do. And um, when you are met with uh, words like sin, when you are met with um, 
what you you might expect to be met with love, but uh, love comes out much differently in towns like that, and that's that's tough to deal with. So yeah, that that Stebbins incident. We also see the boy's father. Uh, he he puts his farm up to make sure that when Drummond is held in contempt of court and if he doesn't have a place to stay, he'll have to stay in the in the in the jail. That uh, you know, th- this guy who clearly has gone through hell is he's the one that stands up. I'll put my my farm up for it. Yes. And you've got one of the other men, the important men in the town, the bank owner, or I guess whoever runs the bank, big manager says, mm-hmm. I will accept the value like just like that. You know, th- we don't have to wait for paperwork. This is accredited or whatever the word would be. Th- there's there's some community stuff outside. It's, it's very small, but at the end of this at the end of this movie, most of this town is still going to live the way that they were living. They're disappointed that the sentence wasn't as bad as they wanted it to be. And in in reality, you think about, I was explaining this movie on a car ride two days ago. The idea that like, no, he, no, he's guilty. He, he, of of course he is the jury of his peers in that town. Of course he's guilty. Um, But what does being guilty mean when it comes to an unjust law? It, it's such it's such a great question. I, I feel like I'm 19 again in political science 201. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, church hurt. That's the term that's thrown around a lot in in my church. It's the j- concept that you just mentioned. You know, where somebody who is a, a divorcee is turned away because of the choices that they've made to leave their marriage, or people who you know. Have, have any type of walk of life that someone in the church might think is not in alignment with scripture are turned away. And then it creates this, this separation between them and their desire to want to get to know Jesus. And I think it's, it's really unfortunate because, you know, we, as people, we are imperfect. I believe that the Bible is real and true and that the word of God in and of itself is is perfect, but we as people are broken. And so we're never going to completely get it right. And uh, and I think it's when you allow that hate to come in that it's it can get really messy. And then you're, what you had set out to do, which is bring people closer to God, just only pushes them away and pushes them farther away and creates more separation. So it's Church hurt is still very much a real thing today. And so I think in that way, this movie is really, really relevant. And I I would have loved to see, I think Sarah, in my opinion, is a really wonderful depiction of, I, I think, kind of more modern Christianity in the sense where I think she has very firm beliefs and she stands strong about them, but she also is not without compassion. She's able to show love and compassion to the people around her that aren't necessarily in alignment with her thought or thinking. I sometimes look at characters like that. And I think it's great to see the person who maybe aligned with a staunch unmoving side who can be more of a free thinker or can be more compassionate. And um, gosh, whether it's something like, you know, uh, I'm reaching my hand across the bridge. You need to come with me. And the person won't extend their hand. Like, it's too late. I'm not able to be changed. But I want to listen to you who's young enough to be able to change or to accept or to whatever the word, the verb is. And uh, that's what I felt from from her was that 
Um, hey, yeah, I've stuck by this guy for 40 years. What do you want from me? Like this, this is everything I've, I, I, it's too late for me to change. Now you kids run along and do your new science stuff, but no, this is how we do it. And it's just how I am. Yeah. You know, I actually, I think I interpreted that a little different. I think that, you know, she, she says, um, I, she says something that's wonderful to Sarah or to, excuse me, Sarah says something wonderful to Rachel, you know, when she's so mad at Brady, she's like, he betrayed me. She says, you betrayed yourself. You see my husband is a saint. And so he must be right in everything that he says and does. And you see him as a devil and everything he says and does must be wrong. Well, my husband's neither a saint nor a devil. He's just a human being. And he makes mistakes. And I think that she's kind of able to see things for really what they are. I think she has her strong convictions. And I think she says, you know, I'm, I'm sticking up for my husband of 40 years because I acknowledge that I'm not going to hold his character accountable to this moment that is not really depicting him favorably because I know who he is truly inside and that his principles are, you know, not necessarily coming through with his actions, but I know who this man is because we've been together for 40 years. So I feel like, I don't know, I kind of, I feel like I interpreted that just like a little differently. That was more like, you can't possibly sit, stand here and tell me that you know my husband better than I do. If you, you know, because you said it, you said we're all just humans. And so anytime you put somebody on a pedestal, they're going to let you down. Don't, you know, don't meet your heroes. And yes, 100%. God, yeah. I said it last week, man. <laughs> do you judge, do you judge people on the totality of their life or one mistake they made, you know? I mean, assuming it's a forgivable mistake, do you say, well, you know, they did this too, and let's only give them a, a D minus right now instead of taking them all the way out? Great. I mean, we're all broken. And I think if the reality is, is that regardless of who you are, if you, if we all decided to judge each other by our worst mistakes, then we would all, you know, we're all damned. Yeah. So I think it's, I think that for me, that kind of felt like, the point that she was trying to make is, you know, I'm not proud of him in this moment, but I also have been with this man for 40 years and I'm going to stick by him because I know who he is inside. Yeah. Another, another great example of this, this movie having lessons maybe where you didn't need, there's a big one and then there's a bunch of little ones too. That's right. Yes. And talking about this movie, we cannot get to our superlatives before we really talk about the atmosphere of this movie, because even though the movie itself takes place in the courtroom and from the outside looking in, it seems like it's just in a very hot room. We could, we would be remiss not to talk about the location. So, I mean, this is in the Bible belt. So, I mean, this, the location of this movie truly has everything to do with the importance of this film. Date in the actual town is more to the East. And that was the, the more, well, it's just in the mountains more than I than than is represented in this movie. But Hillsboro, if you lived in a town like Hillsboro or Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and you don't think too much and you don't, you know, uh, you set your expectations and you live in it, you can have a wonderful life. I had an archaeology professor tell me that, you know, well, they've been building cities for 10,000 years, but the lives of the basic person has not changed all that much. They just live within the city. So I think if you lived in Hillsboro and you were a part of that community, you, you'd just be happy as a clam. My, my small town, my small town is Wares Valley, Tennessee, unincorporated, 1100 people. And, uh, 
there's more churches than gas stations and there's no stoplights. And this is, this is something where I must have been propped up and told you need to use your brain and get out of here by a lot of people, the cap on your life, the places you can go like the Dr. Seuss book. If you stay here, the ceiling will be low. We're all happy here and we can get to work in less than 10 minutes and we uh, enjoy each other's company and all the kids will go to the one school K through eight. So like there's, you can have that. And like Hillsborough is a place that I, I think I, if I'm in Hillsborough, I'm one of these homeroom kids that says, this is something new and I'm excited to learn it. I, I And I, I got to say for our boy who hits the stand, I think his name is Howard. Good, good portrayal of a uh, teenage boy, by the way, like with the, with not just the politeness, but also with uh, general understanding. I think he's asked like, you understand what I'm saying? No, sir. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> and there, there's a certain, there's a certain amount of, um, in a way, ignorance is bliss. You think about how much information is at our fingertips and there is, there's times I go back to East Tennessee. I go back to the Smokies. Like, why would I ever leave again? <sighs> and I, but, but really I, I believe I'm much more of the Chicago or Baltimore guy with the metropolitan, the things that I want to see and experience that town and the connections there where everybody knows each other. I've said it a number of times on this podcast, the worst thing you can give me is a bad Southern accent. <laughs> They're all great in this one. This is, this is, this really hits home. This is a home run in terms of nailing that Southern demographic. I think. Yes. Agreed. I, I think if you had asked me 10 years ago when I was 25, if I wanted to live in Hillsborough, I would have probably given some kind of ex expletive of why I don't want to live there. And I would have been really loud about it. But now that I've grown and experienced life and I'm just, you know, a different person, I've got three kids and I just, my life is settled and, and fulfilling in kind of that more simple way. To me, i I would move to Hillsboro. I love, I love that small town feel where there's a sense of community and people tend to, you know, where someone and someone comes in from out of town. And even if they don't completely approve of, of their line of thinking, it's like, Hey, do you need a place to stay? I've got a nice place for you. I love that. It reminds me of where my dad was from in Harlan, Kentucky, really East Kentucky. Oh, yeah. uh, but, you know, I think as far as where we are now, 2023, we've never been more connected while simultaneously also being, you know, a record of reporting being lonely. You know, it's a, just a different time where we're moving at such a fast pace that you have to kind of ask the question of, are they on to something by kind of bringing it back to the basics of just making it about community and family. And for me, it's it's not for everybody, but I'd move to Hillsboro and I'd probably love it there. I'd wave to you as I got on the bus out. There's an aspect of like that small community where, you know, think of the farmer's market and everybody on that one block or that street. Now think about if your town was the farmer's market all the time. That's Hillsboro. Love it. And, and, and I love that. I actually, in, at the University of Tennessee, I, I, I was pre-law for about two years. So there's an aspect of this 
the big time attorneys like that, that was appealing to me. But um, I, I definitely share your sentiment that uh, Hillsborough would be a great place to like settle down, be happy and like put the put the the perils of the rest of your life away. Yes. Nice retirement. Agreed. What about that song, right? I mean, I think I'm big, big confession here. I am almost positive that I've sung that song in some capacity, whether it be in my grandparents' church or in the choir with my granddaddy, because the second I heard it, I could finish the lyrics. So in some way, shape, or form, I've sung that song before in uh, in a choir setting. But that, I mean, as far as soundtrack and score, I mean, that's it, right? I mean, there's really nothing else to say other than give me that old-time religion. Yeah, yeah old-time religion and glory. Uh, you have, you, you, you do have a bit of a score, and half of it is variations on old-time religion, mm-hmm. which is well done. Yes. The rest of it, uh, there, there are times that I feel like there's... I've mentioned this before with movies of this era where it's just a little bit too loud and brash at times. I'm not taking away a single thing about the music used in this movie. It, it fit. It really fit uh, there. So th- th- they did play with variations on it, which I thought was uh, appropriate. Yes. They, they uh, hit that old time religion pretty well in another ni- uh, 1941 movie, uh, Sergeant York, where he becomes a conscientious objector. After he reads the Bible and doesn't want to fight oh, wow. World War One, then he goes on to be the most decorated soldier of World War One later. But but uh, the, the, that song and the the kind of the theme of that is hit a lot of times in movies coming up from around World War Two on up that I know of. I'm a huge fan of when a song is revisited uh, several times. Uh, in a score, there are also uh, hymns and uh, church songs that mean more to me. This is one, though, that I think I got hit with it so much in the first 30 minutes of this one that every time I heard it again, I was like, okay, give me something new, though. Give me some give me some variation. Alter this a little bit. Uh, yeah. I, I think my, my hymn of choice, uh, gosh, what would it be? Um, will the circle be unbroken? If you, you, you give me you give me that hymn and I'm a happy man. That's a good one. Oh, there's so many beautiful hymns. I love them all. I agree. Old Town Religion was really fun and very appropriate for the first half of the movie. Nearer my God to thee. Okay, maybe that's my number one. Yes. I love that you know all the old all the oldies. Talk about classics. Really? And while we're talking about classics, let's segue over into our movie superlative. So are you guys ready to give out some awards? Sure. Loudy, yes. All right, let's do it. Okay, so John, we're going to start with you. We're going to do our best MVP. It can be director, actor, anybody you thought really stood out and carried the movie. Well, this is probably going to surprise you based on what I've said earlier, but it's Gene Kelly as the snake in the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. It's just the best thing in this movie to me. Nice. Awesome choice. Dustin, what about you? Uh, I, I Both of our leads, I believe our leads are Drummond and Brady, so Frederick March and Spencer Tracy. We didn't talk about Spencer Tracy at all, uh, really, which is a shame because I think he did a, gr- a tremendous job as Drummond. I'm going to go with Brady, though. I'm going to go with Frederick March. Uh, he has these ticks with his mouth, and he has a nervousness about seeking the approval of the his constituency in a way. And uh, But he's also got a strength, and he's got a belief and uh, his portrayal of this type of character 
you lean just a couple degrees in any other direction and he's either not as menacing is not the right word but not as believing like believable or convincing or he's too, he's he's too bad and he's a minister frollo so i th- i think the way that the way that he played it was the best way it could have been played so he deserves the props absolutely agree with that i found him very likable and i agree that that's difficult in a role such as that so i i definitely give him props for that i put Florence Eldridge. So I had no idea that she was Frederick's real life wife, but I loved her. I felt like she was the voice of reason throughout this movie. I really admired her ability to comfort Rachel and just kind of be that anchor with Drummond when things felt like they were getting out of hand to kind of just pull him back and remember that their their allies and then same for Brady as well because of course Brady took kind of that step over that line at one point and she really helped anchor him back so I think without her I think things could have slipped into utter chaos all right John best supporting actor uh well this one I went with Frederick March and I thought he was amazing and I'm not absolutely sure but I think they had a dental prosthetic on him Uh, kind of an overbite very I'm, much so. It doesn't yes. look like that in other movies. And just eating that chicken, and uh, I didn't say it earlier, but I thought the the heat, and this is very uh, appropriate for our time right now today, uh, the heat was a major character in this movie. Just yeah. making yeah. that court oppressive and him just eating that chicken and having so much joy, you know, just <laughs> greasy fingers and everything. I, he was fantastic. Nice. Dustin, what about you? Best supporting actor? Claude Atkins. Uh, I, I did mention that uh, as as Reverend Jeremiah Brown, that he may be my, one of my top three mo- more powerful pastors type characters I've ever seen. Um, and uh, the, the the when he is uh, sort of confronting Rachel and uh, he's nearly weeping, he's doubled over in his uh, uh, remorse or piety in a way like that. That will nearly, and, and I'm I'm far from Hillsboro. I'm far from Wears Valley, Tennessee, in a lot of ways. And but but to see a demonstration, it, it, it was so believable. Uh, John, you said that's kind of against type, but could have fooled me because that is that is certainly a powerful portrayal. Nice. I um I put Frederick March and Spencer Tracy. This is what I followed your your lead, Dustin. These were my supporting actors. I couldn't choose just one. I had to go with them both. Their chemistry was so good. And I just, I love, even in sports, when someone falls down and someone on the other team like helps them back up and you just kind of have that sportsmanship with each other. I love that. And I loved watching that in this movie. And I thought that, you know, kind of regardless of what side of the coin you're on with this argument, I thought that it was really nice to see that they could maintain that respect for each other, no matter how passionately they disagreed. And I just, I think that their chemistry was dynamite. Hey, Dustin, you talked about the rocking chair uh, thing, the scene where the uh, Drummond and Brady were talking, but the rocking chairs were out of sync with each other. That's right. <laughs> just to show their opposition. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it, it was, we know in the world of attorneys that these people are generally buddy buddy and that when they get in the courtroom to do their job for one and a half hours, they may be <laughs> not on the same team. They're going for drinks right after. And um, <clears throat> there was a show put on about like 
you know, Colonel Brady versus this metropolitan atheist heretic. And I, I, I just I'm thinking that like that was part of the show, too. And uh, the idea that nobody was around to see them just kind of, uh, you know, waxing poetic about old times. But that, that was something special to watch. Hidden gem, John. Well, I thought uh, Jimmy Boyd, he was kind of, he played the student Howard he talked about before. And I just, he was a breath of fresh air. I thought he, you know, kicked kind of, I'm kind of uh, smart and I'm not too smart. I'm not worldly. And uh, it was very good. I noticed he, in just a, this doesn't have anything to do with the movie, but I noticed he was married to uh, Yvonne DiCarlo, and, uh, who was Lily Munster on The Monsters. Interesting. Oh, fun. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, he was great. He was charming, and he it was kind of that perfect neutral character that to put on the stand. He was great. Dustin, Hidden Gem? I thought you were going to steal my little trivia fact, too. Jimmy Boyd is mine as well. Uh, my second place would be the guy who works at the feed store. I think he becomes the jury foreman. Uh, but Howard was great. Uh, Jimmy Boyd, also known for the classic 1952 hit, I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus. No way! He was the one That's that so sang funny. that song. Yeah, but I, I, I thought he did great. This is two straight movies where I've, I've found that the... Uh, the, the person playing the teenager in the, this is two straight 1960 movies where I'm like, they are really nailing the uh, naivety, the juvenile wonder. The, the, this guy did a great job. So well done, Jimmy Boyd. Agreed. Agreed. I put, I put Dick York because I could not put my finger on where he was from for the first 30 minutes. And then eventually it hit me. Yes. That he is bewitched. He's from bewitched. And I was like, Oh my gosh, it's all coming together for me now. And so it was really hard to look at him without immediately just thinking about the nose twitch. And uh, I just, I thought (laughs) you think he's, he's a doll. I think that he's, he's a great little hidden gem for this movie. John, real quick, uh, so you, you know that it's Dick York in, in Bewitched. Do you know who the other actor playing the main character in Bewitched was? Yeah, Dick Sargent. And so I always think of that because we remember Dick York, Dick Sargent, Sergeant York. Sergeant York. <laughs> I was watching I was watching Wayne's World 2 today. You know, they, they throw that joke out in Wayne's World 1, too. <laughs> Extreme close-up. All right, recast. John, who are we recasting? Well, uh, again, I said I would uh, recast Donna Anderson, who played Rachel Brown, with a more likable actress. I don't I don't know what it was, but something about her just didn't gel with me. And I thought a good replacement for her would be uh, Michael Learned, who was the mother on the Waltons. They're actually the same age. I fully trust you being the expert in all things classic movies. Dustin, who are we recasting? I liked Gene Kelly's performance. I did, but I'm recasting him. I want Jack Lemmon in there. Uh, now, I, I mentioned I'm a fan of Kelly's uh, dancing work, uh, and, and I, I want to see actors stretch their potential. But I would have really liked to see Jack Lemmon, who I think is seen as like wholesome or um, chummy. He, he's, he's always likable in his comedy, at least he always has been to me. So to see Lemmon playing like a clever, quick-witted, slimier type of humor as opposed to his like traditional batch of characters that would have been really something agreed yeah that's super cool i you know john you and i agree i we talked about this a little bit earlier but 
I I wanted to replace Rachel as well. I just think she lacked a little bit of depth for me, a little bit of range. Um, I just I wanted so I loved Claude Atkins portrayal of the reverend. And I think that it just, I feel like I needed somebody that could really meet him. And I, I can't 100% guarantee this is going to hit, but I selected Audrey Hepburn because I feel like looks wise, they seem pretty on par with each other, but I'm a huge fan of Audrey Hepburn. And I feel like she's got such amazing range that I think she would have been able to bring that innocence, but more importantly than anything, I think she would have been able to bring the passion that I think Donna lacked. That's a good point. All right. So best shot, John. Well, there, like uh, we've talked about already, there's a lot of good tracking shots in this, but uh, to me again, when they came from Bert and uh, Sarah and they tracked through and hit Hornbeck eating that apple. Yeah. To me, that was the best shot in the movie. Although there were a lot of good ones where they crossed a lot of, every time they did one of those long tracking shots, there was a lot of information in the shot. Yeah. Good point. Dustin, best shot. Reverend Brown on the dais holding a prayer meeting in the middle of the woods. Uh, I've been out in those woods and uh, that was powerful. You, you, I, I don't know much else to say. I'm, I, I can't say anything. <laughs> I'm, I'm stricken by uh, the, can you hear some of the people in the crowd, you know, calling out and, he, and he's, he's doing a classic story that everybody knows. He's talking about Genesis, right? He's not even doing something obscure. He's doing something everybody knows. And even still, I'm just like, man, I'm, I feel like I was one of those kids that like, I don't want to go to Sunday school. I want to actually listen to the preacher. You know what I mean? So like, this yes. is, this is like, huge to see this great portrayal of it that was my best shot is just from like the crowd looking at him up on the stage agreed i i completely agree with you i think he was intense in a very convicting way so it was he he did a really amazing job my best shot i I think my best shot, honestly, I always tend to go with the opening scene. And maybe it's because I have a really horrible habit of having no idea what's going on. And so I'm just so intrigued by what's happening in the very first couple of minutes because I'm desperately trying to understand what this is about. But I really thought that there was something really interesting about all of these men in suits and hats that are just kind of marching in unison with each other to head inside. And you've got the old town religion playing and... You know, I they're about to arrest Bert, and I just I thought that that whole opening scene of just the aerial shot of all of these men marching was was really interesting, and it completely piqued my curiosity. Like, you know, where are you going? What are you about to do? And uh, I I found that really cool. It's not like they're doing a great job of sneaking in either. They make themselves very <laughs> apparent, and uh, it's it kind of tests his metal. You're going to continue with your lesson, aren't you? And he does. Um, like, I know what you're here for, and I'm just going to keep going. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Really sets the tone very much. Best scene, John. There's so many in this movie. Uh, you know, my uh, I would go second place where uh, Brady falls when, he's, when he has the busted gutter or whatever killed him when he falls. That's my second. But for first, I'm still going to have to go back to uh, Hornbeck and, and Drummond. There at the end of the scene when they're doing the wrap up, you know, like you're terrible, you're a terrible person, you're horrible, you're going to be lonely, you're going to die alone. 
no, you're going to come be with me because you're that guy. So I, that was the best part because you actually saw where everybody was at that point. You knew the position that everybody was in, no matter what the job they did. Nice. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It was uh, really powerful. Dustin, you you said this at one point. It's just like the fact that the movie didn't end with the trial. It ended with these two characters kind of trying to figure out what just happened and where do we go from here feels really interesting because in life, sometimes when you've been spit out of, you know, you've sucked into a tornado and then spit back out again, you really do have that feeling of what just happened. And it was a very human moment. And it was, it was cool for that to watch that. Dustin, what about you? Best scene. I'm going to take John's best shot. It's when, when uh, you get the introduction of EK Hornbeck. And uh, I think there's a lot of quick humor there. Um, and, you are seeing that uh, the world is, has its eyes on Hillsboro, um, and he's talking to both Bert and Rachel. Though in reality, Bert and Rachel don't have much to do with what the rest happens in the movie. Uh, so I thought I was making a mistake where I was just like picking a, a scene early that I thought like, oh, this is going to stand out. And I was bombarded with a lot of incredible scenes later. Mm-hmm. But because this was this was around the last time that them as an item stayed relevant. And you just have this, who is this EK guy? And how do I get more of him on screen? Uh, That it kind of stuck with me. So yes, the best scene was his introduction. That was a great scene. Also one thing that one scene that we didn't talk about is a scene right before where is he, is he playing cards with the, with With the the jailer, with the bailiff. It's so so cute. He's just like, can you mind getting back in there? You know, just like, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like the aesthetics of the situation. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny. Um, my best scene, this was really hard to pick, honestly, but my best scene was apart from the the sermon in the woods, I would say is really just the end scene with with Brady, just like the very last part of the trial. Because you can tell while he's speaking, you know, he's saying like, this isn't just about this trial. This is just about so much more than that. And, and I, I think the passion in his voice and he's so deeply convicted and you can tell for him, this isn't just about winning the, the, the specific law of what's going to happen in Hillsborough from now on, but that it's really more about making sure that he's, he's, he's convicted to make sure that, God's message isn't going to be taken in vain and that, you know, he's protecting the gospel at all costs. And just the way that he is so passionate about it, it's such an intense moment. And then for him to talk and just be so winded and then immediately collapse, it's just, it was a very, very intense moment and definitely felt like the crux of the movie, just very climactic. All right, let's move into best hair and makeup moment, John. It wasn't really, a, it was not really um, hair and makeup, uh, but I loved when they were, the heat was driving them to ask permission to take off their coats and the, and the use of galluses instead of suspenders. I thought that was uh, just an interesting uh, play on words or a use of old language and it had to yeah. do with their clothing. Uh, I actually, I, I was, that was going to be my option. Um, but I, I think I have to go with, I know I recast him, but I got to go with the way that Gene Kelly wears his paper hat. Uh, of course he does. He's a dancer. So that's, <laughs> that's mine. 
Nice. I think we kind of three for three here. I feel like the sweat was just such a a character in this movie. I mean, just you, one point Brady lifts up his arms and he's just drenched in his armpits. And then Drummond just has it like all over his, you know, his chest and all, they're constantly dabbing their foreheads. It was like just sweat everywhere. But assuming that that was unintentional, then I would say that I I got to go with the hats too. I think Rachel's hat game was just so on point. I love the the 1920s dress. I think it's just so classy and timeless. Love it. Can we do change one thing first? If I could change one thing, I would I would tighten up uh, Drummond and Brady's friendship talks just a little bit. You know, they kind of brought the tempo down. I would just make the dialogue a little tighter. And that's about the only thing I would change in this movie. Still trying right. to get the same, try to get the same effect, but with just keep the pace going a little bit. I can appreciate that. Absolutely. Very dialogue heavy. Dustin, what about you? Given what we know about attorneys and their social circles, I think I would have liked to have both Brady and Drummond make it out alive for this to really have been shown that like, Hey, I volunteered for this. You were brought in by the Baltimore uh, Herald. We do our thing. We do our big show. It doesn't stop. It starts when we arrive in town. Then it's over. And instead of just Drummond and EK talking about what happened, you get a nice little button of Drummond and Brady meeting on a train, going out to Weeping Falls, Nebraska, sharing a brandy or a cigar or something, being like, hey, yeah, that was tough. That was a tough one. We're old pros. We came up together. On to the next one. I I would love that feel. And I don't think the feel at the end of this movie was wrong. I just think if I had to change one thing, I would like that. I like that. I think that would be a great ending. They should really... I've never seen the 1990s version. Of course, not having seen this one. But I do. it's my understanding that there is a remake. So you never There's two, I think. Yeah, and there's one That's- in the 90s that uh, has people I would be intrigued to see. I'd like to see Jonathan Price as Brady. I think as far as change one thing, this is this is tough for me. I'm not going to lie. I listened to another podcast that was filled with, you know, people who are more having kind of like the true like evolution versus creation discussion and it made me really sad when they felt they fell so heavy on the spectrum of really looking at a lot of the Christian values as you know looking at a lot of these zealots and really just seeing a lot of hatred made me really sad that it you know based on, and of course a lot of that's just based on their upbringing and um and and where they're from because of course just like if you're raised with you know in a christian home you're you're more than likely to continue on that into adulthood at least to some degree than if you're raised in a non-christian home and this is the only depiction of christianity you see then it, that can i understand that that's pretty intense. So I I think I would have liked to have seen just a little bit more grace from Hillsboro. I think that there's, I'm absolutely on board. I think that, you know, I, grace doesn't necessarily mean enabling and in and, and letting go of your principles, but I think that there is a world in which we can be heavily convicted and still be really kind. And I think that the whole sour apple tree thing, although it definitely had its purposes, I think the intensity of it 
I I fear from what I had listened to deterred a lot of people from from even wanting to explore Christianity. And so I think that I probably would have slid a little bit of grace in there so that it didn't kind of create that church hurt narrative. Yeah, it's almost too easy. It's just a well that's gone too too frequently to have uh, Christianity and zealotry and uh, like like kind of be hand in hand. And if if we're going to have um, lines being gray or <laughs> zones being gray or anything, uh, it's it's better. It's act it's actually stronger to present all of the great things about uh, a community like that. Uh, instead of the woman, you know, knitting in the in the courtroom, just yelling stuff out. Yeah, you, you tell them or get out of my town. Like that's it, it's 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 a stronger position without the caricature. Agreed. Very much agreed. I think that the very well said as well. So I, I don't need to add anything else to that. I think that's perfect. I was that the. Uh, I- thought I wrote it down, but maybe I didn't. That woman was doing the same as uh, the uh, guillotine lady from A Tale of Two Cities, uh, like 2023 20, or whenever that movie came out. But she sat there and knitted the whole time while people were being executed. Wow. And so it, it, it's a direct, it's almost a direct copy. A little homage. Yes. Yeah. All right. Best quote, John. Okay, well, um, they had the WGN radio in there, and the technician was uh, Norman Fell. He played Mr. Roper on a television show called Three's Company, and it, uh, John Ritter uh, yeah. secretly lived with two women. I don't know if you remember that show. And so he was always a funny guy, but the quote, I tried to find a one-liner, that, but I couldn't find one. But Drummond contemplates a radio microphone in the courtroom and says, God in hell, and the radio operator played by Norman Fell, you're not supposed to say hell either. And he tells him, you're not supposed to say God. You're not supposed to say hell. And Drummond responds, this is going to be a barren source of amusement. <laughs> yeah, that's good. It's a good exchange. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Dustin, best quote. Uh, mine comes from a longer quote, and I'm not going to give the whole thing, because if you just parse down this sentence, I think it's uh, it's telling to me it's one I will remember and maybe think about in terms of my interactions in my life and how I see the news and I see the world. Fanaticism and ignorance is forever busy and needs feeding. Yes, I remember that was a powerful line for sure. Right at the climax, really. Yeah, to the jury. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mine was I'm more concerned with the rock of ages than the ages of rocks. <laughs> the ages of rocks, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was really amazing. It was punny and uh and I, you know, kind of True. I, I would say that I, I am in alignment with that. So I, it was, I, I appreciated that. And if given the opportunity, I'll toss that out in an argument. And I, I love that when he says a line like that, he kind of leans over to the crowd. He gives a little yeah. like eyebrow waggle. Like, <laughs> He's such a peacock. Yeah. He really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, okay. So we've gone through our superlatives overall. What do we think about this movie? So we're going to give it a rating. John, we're going to start with you. We're going to do five stars. You can do half increments, uh, zero to five stars, five being perfect. What are we rating it? I'm going to have to give this one a five and I'll watch it over and over and over again. So it must be a five to me. Nice. 
We've watched it 20 times, you said. You said that in the beginning. Yeah. So I think rewatchability is always a huge factor. Yes. Dustin, what about you? The other hosts on this podcast gave me a hard time because I didn't rate 12 Angry Men, the number one movie of like 2020 when we covered it. And it's because I had seen it a lot and I had already learned the lesson, you see. I'd already learned the lesson. Well, with this movie, this was a new lesson and a new portrayal of something that I really loved seeing and I loved feeling and I loved thinking. We're going to listen to Drummond about thinking. I am not giving it five. I'm giving it four and a half. And the only reason really is uh, I, I felt as if uh, we mentioned a little bit about like some of the subplots that we want developed a little bit more. Some of the like, the, the Brown family stuff might have been better. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, just That's just a little bit. That might contribute to uh, a portion of that half star coming off. But uh, I think this movie has set an example, or there have been other movies like it that have done such a great job with the um, cross-examination of a witness revealing something to the jury or revealing something to the audience that is so jaw-dropping and so well done, uh, written by legal authors or written by uh, like really like like puzzle-solving style reveals that the argument that Drummond makes to Brady about, well, are you the only one allowed to think this way or should we all be able to think this way? It, it, it was long. It was a stunning performance to get all of that out, especially with those shots. But I felt that the argument didn't reach the heights I wanted it to reach for him to make the point that he made. And for that alone, I'm moving it from five to four and a half. I, I still think this is a movie I will rewatch. It's, all, it's already a movie I've, I will recommend. Uh, I thought it was a great choice. So thank you, John. Thank you. I have to say, I think this movie was really thought provoking and I really truly enjoyed my time. Like I said earlier, I kind of stopped and started as I watched this movie and I would tell my husband what's happening. I would be like, okay, so right now they're in the courtroom and this is how I think this movie is going to end, but we don't know yet. And it was just being able to talk to him about it. And then it was really on my mind almost all day after watching it. So I, I really appreciate movies that are able to really get me thinking and get my wheels turning and, and kind of like you said, Dustin, just really help me to explore in a well-rounded way, how I feel about the issues at hand and, and just kind of where I stand. So I think that being said, I'm going to give the movie a four where I think the movie went wrong. I kind of already went there with that change one thing. I think that for the person who's looking at this movie at just face value, they're not really taking the opportunity to peel back the onion. This feels like anti-Christian propaganda. I think that if you're just looking at it at face value, it's possible that you see kind of these religious zealots and then say to yourself, like, I don't want to be like that, or I don't want to be around people like that. And while I can, I, I can appreciate it because when you've got, you know, if, if you're not taking the time to really look at the nuance of the situation and you're just seeing people marching around with effigies on fire, then, you know, certainly that's not something that you want to go near. I think that, for someone like myself and for the two of you, I mean, we can really peel back those layers and talk about those nuances. But I think that where I wish this movie would have, as I said, entered in a little bit more grace so that there was 
more that met the eye when it came to Hillsboro and their belief system that really let in a little bit more love, a little bit more Jesus into the into the picture. So I I really liked the movie. I think I will rewatch it and I think I'll recommend it. But I think definitely with that asterisk of you have to really make sure that you're paying attention. I think it's important. Uh, and I, I, I fully agree with what you had mentioned for your change one thing and for your rating. Uh, I, I want to bring up two things. One, we didn't touch on the McCarthyism parable at all, at, at all. And I was uninterested to do it. Th- that would be a different show. And the second thing is, it's a 1960 movie about 1920. So we've had 40 years to think about like, hey, this is how we used to be. Remember? Remember? And I think that's something that uh, I'm not like, go- it, I'm not making the stance against what you said, but I like the idea that we, we are showing that, yeah, yeah that that community didn't have as much grace as they should have. And, and it's portrayed a, a little bit too one-to-one to a type of people that we really do not feel like embodies our faith. That being said, though, sometimes that's great to see as in like, that's how it used to be. And we mm-hmm. certainly aren't anymore. And, and, and maybe, maybe that's why, you know, that distance could have been good, but gosh, you think about, this is about a, this is a 103 years old in terms of the time period. Uh, and it's pretty wild to, uh, to think about this because while I think my earliest movie is 27, I did Metro uh, Metropolis uh, as far as like the, the, it seems like a 1920s movie. It doesn't seem like a 1960s movie about the twenties. Right. Uh, You're absolutely right. It really does. They do a very good job of making it a true period piece in my opinion. Yeah. That's all I was going to say. Yeah. I think fair rankings all around. Piggyback on that just for a second. And I didn't really, even think about the McCarthyism connection to this movie. But looking back at Stanley Kramer's list, it's High Noon, 1952, and that's a direct McCarthy movie. So he may yeah. have had that tendency. Yeah, may have. May have. Yeah. And that's that's another thing, too, is when, when the movie gives you so much more enjoyment than beyond the two hours that it lasts. And uh, that's that's whether you talk about it, whether you have a show, whether you listen to a show. Or whether it just gives you some ammunition to think about what artists were doing with their platforms. Pretty cool That's right. stuff. That's right. Well, John, we thank you so much for joining us. And will you tell us just one more time a little bit about the Classic Film Review podcast and just where people can find you on social media? Well, thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. And I had a great time. You can find me on Apple Podcast at Classic Movie Review without the S. And you can go to ClassicMovieRevRev.com. That's my website. And then you can find my YouTube channel from there. Thank awesome. You. And you have a book as well, as I understand, right? I do have a, I have a, the ABCs of uh, Film Noir, which is a picture book. And it's and then I have all the, the Coyote's Tale, which is speaking a, my language. Uh, uh, it, he's an anim, It's a it's a world of New Orleans, but they're all animals. You know, they live animals like humans. And I flesh that out, and I just finished my first archaeological mystery novel and haven't published it yet. But um, oh, it's going to so come cool. out soon. So keep your eyes peeled. Yeah. Yes. So all, well, all that links will be on the web. Well, John, we will definitely check that out. And thank you so much for joining us talking about film noir. Dustin, we are talking crime for next week. 
So do you want to help me pick out a crime action movie for next week? Crime action movies. I got three of them. Option number one, Lizzie, the Boondock Saints from 1999. Two Irish Catholic brothers become vigilantes and wipe out Boston's criminal underworld in the name of God. Option two, Once Upon a Time in Mexico from 2003. The hitman El Mariachi becomes involved in international espionage involving a psychotic CIA agent and a corrupt Mexican general. Or option number three, Smoke and Aces from 2006, when a Las Vegas performer turned snitch named Buddy Israel decides to turn state's evidence and testify against the mob. It seems that a whole lot of people would like to make sure he's no longer breathing. What are we going to pick? I'm going to park the car and have a yard. It's my best Boston accent. We're going to go with option number one, Boondock Saints. Oh, Absolutely. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, Dustin, thanks for joining me, John. Ooh. Thanks for coming on the podcast. And you're certainly welcome anytime. And thank you, all the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us because we want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Products, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us on our YouTube channel, mostly audio only. Give us a like on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. Possibly not anymore. Who knows what Twitter's called anymore? I don't know. <laughs> at retro movie underscore. All that. Excuse me. At movie underscore retro. Email us at retro movie roundtable at yahoo.com. Producing and, pro- and providing this podcast is fun, but it's not free. So we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash retro movie roundtable. Any contribution is much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you the listeners as always thank you for listening be good to each other and watch more movies dustin don't torture yourself gomez that's my job